Since 1971, Beautio Books has specialized in ornithology and natural history. They're a small, family-owned and operated mail-order bookstore with the largest selection of new, used, and rare birding and ornithology books in the world and a knowledgeable staff ready to help. Find field guides, travel guides, ornithology, natural history, humor, even children's books to inspire the next generation's love of nature. Visit beautyobooks.com to find everything you're looking for, and ABA members receive 10% off. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm Nate Swick. Before we get to this week's episode, the January This Month in Birding, some news that is a little sad. We are nearing the end for one of Hawaii's native forest birds, though we've known it for some time. The Akikiki, a little warblery nuthatch honeycreeper found only on the island of Kauai, has seen its wild population plummet from 40-ish individuals a year ago to now as few as one, certainly no more than three. We've spoken here about Hawaiian birds in the past, interviewed researchers from the Kauai Forest Bird Recovery Project, which have been monitoring Akikiki and others over the last few years and capturing some for a captive breeding project, which has its own issues and may or may not be successful. So we've certainly seen the writing on the wall for some time. That doesn't make the news any less distressing when it finally comes. The primary culprit, unsurprisingly, is avian malaria carried by mosquitoes that are able to reach the highland territories of this bird on the island of Kauai because of global warming. It makes these previously inhospitable areas hospitable to insects. Rats and other invasive mammals and plants are secondary causes, but it's the mosquitoes most of all. And though we will not know the exact date when the last wild kikiki expires, it will undoubtedly be in 2024 when it does. Efforts to institute the biological mosquito control, which has long been hoped to be the savior of many Hawaiian birds, arrived too late, unfortunately, for a kikiki, though it will ramp up this year and with luck may be the saving grace for other Hawaiian forest birds dealing with the same stressors. Obviously, the other invasives and habitat loss will continue to be an issue, but if you can deal with the mosquitoes, success looks certainly more likely. It is a tragic loss to anyone who appreciates biodiversity, even if it is unsurprising to anyone who has been following the extinction crisis on the Hawaiian Islands. It's not often that birds wink out in front of us with all eyes on them like this. And if there's any hope to take from this, it is that the attention here should focus on Hawaiian birds for which there is still a chance, however long that chance may be. Certainly, this will not be the last we hear about this bird and this place this year. On the show this week, this month in birding, we welcome Stephanie Bilkey, Jordan Rudder, and Brody Cass Talbot to talk mallard quasi domestication, smart binoculars, and more, all after this week's rare birds. This is your rare bird focus for the third week of January 2024. The very first, first record of 2024 was the hepatic tanager in Maine, an example of a southwestern species turning up in the northeast. The second first of 2024 is that in reverse, New Mexico, which hosts healthy populations of breeding hepatic tanagers, boasts its state first record of purple sandpiper this week, a species that is a quite common winter resident in Maine in Eddy County. We don't usually think of purple sandpiper as a vagrant, but there are a surprising number of records of this North Atlantic rock piper in the interior west and out to California and British Columbia. Most of these records are midwinter, December, and January, so this is right on target for purple sandpiper vagrancy. We look forward to seeing if this reversal pattern holds for the next two first records in 2024. It won't, but it would be fun if it did. That is the highlight for this past week, but for the full list, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash RBA. You can also follow along with the new year of Rare Bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook and on ABA Community. Twenty twenty four is here, and so is the This Month in Birding panel, our monthly roundtable featuring friends from the birding world to talk about the most recent bird and birding news. What a panel we have for you! Let us introduce them. First up, a conservation scientist from Audubon Great Lakes and a Galbatross currently based in Chicago. It is Stephanie Bilkey. Hi, Stephanie. Hey, Nate. It's good to see you. 
Next, our friend from the American Bird Conservancy and the current holder of the most appearances on the American Birding Podcast title belt, I assume, since I've not counted lately. Um, hello, Jordan Rudder. Hello. Happy 2024. Happy 2024. It's great to see you again. And from Portland, Audubon, an educator and trip leader, a birder who just returned to Oregon from a warm weather sojourn in Florida. It is Brody Cast Talbot. Welcome back, Brody. Thanks, Nate. It's better to be back in the show than it is to be back in Oregon. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> it's been that way across a great large swath of North America, it seems. It's beautiful where I am. I'll just say that. <laughs> where you I'm are, everybody not so much. Yeah, thanks. thanks. <laughs> um, let's get started. It's, it's the beginning of a new year, a new year list. I want to hear about your first birding experiences of this year. I want to know what you saw first and what you think that means for the rest of 2024. Have at it. What birds have you seen this year so far? Mine was the humble European starling. Oh, well, you're <gasps> me starling. too. Oh, look at that. Oh, okay. But for what does that mean for 2024? Well, so 2024 is quite birdie for me for a variety of both personal and professional reasons. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm going to bring it back to my intro, what you said, Nate, about me for ABA podcast, which is I did a previous Starling segment. You did. We have talked so, about Starlings in the past. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe this is like coming full circle and yeah, celebrating man. the birds all around us. Or it's a rerun um, either way. Or it's a rerun. Yeah. Oh gosh, I'm <laughs> concerned. <laughs> Are we all running out of things to say about starlings? <laughs> I'm not sure I've ever thought of them as humble, but that's yeah, new new frame. <laughs> I have a question for you. Do you, when you talk about your first bird of the year, are you going on heard or seen or either? Either, both. I usually go when I count my first bird of the year. It's usually a bird that I hear. Like I'll, I'll when I wake up on January first, I will step out my front door. And I will listen for whatever is out there, which is how I have gotten like Tufted Titmouse and Carolina Chickadee uh, in the past. This year reminds a little bit different. But yeah, heard, seen, whatever you got. I, well, I, my wife and I typically like to stay up until uh, midnight the night before. And we usually don't wake up very early the next day. And so I feel mm -hmm. like my first bird of the year is always hearing a crow as I slowly, <laughs> you know, wake up. This year it was actually a yeah. gull of questionable parentage. Because uh, you know, in our neighborhoods there are all these Olympic gulls, you know, these mm -hmm. various sort of hybridy type things. Uh, so I always try to back that up by actually seeing a bird and counting that one, which is a song sparrow, one of my favorite birds. So I was yeah. happier with that than you know the gull swarm. Yeah, I'm not I try not to read too much into my first bird of the year. It, I mean, it's always for me in Chicago, it's a starling or a pigeon or house sparrow. So yeah. I don't try to like think about what that means for the year. But <laughs> I did have my birthday the other day and oh, I went birding. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it ended up being like the first day that it was in double digits outside and I mm -hmm. hadn't really left. Uh, the house hardly at all in the, the last couple of days. So it was actually good to be back outside. And I saw a bald eagle hooded merganser in my first uh, common golden eye of the year. So I was feeling pretty good about that. I feel like it's uh, good signs for, for the next uh, year that I've been alive. <laughs> yeah, those are, all, uh, those are all very cold weather birds, or at least I associate them with cold weather. And um, all very good birds. I'm always excited to see golden eye. That's a that's a great one. Yeah, and I it, it's been a while. It was like a a late uh winter because we had such a warm winter mm -hmm. and I had almost forgotten about how cute they sound. <laughs> oh yeah. Meep. Right, they're little common meep. nighthawk meeps. Yeah, and the the whistle wings too is always a nice touch as well. Yeah, for me, I think I talked about it on the podcast earlier. It was Eastern Bluebird, which is an is a nice brand for me. I turned, uh, I got up a little bit later on January first than I do usually, and I stepped out my front door and I looked off down the row of houses, and there were some uh, Eastern Bluebirds flitting around on the uh, utility box about three houses down, and that was followed almost immediately by uh, red-shouldered hawks, some of the neighborhood red-shouldered hawks, which was very exciting, and not a bird I usually see on uh, on the first. Which is uh, my birthday too. So we have both have January birthdays. Oh, so, happy, uh, birthday. happy birthday! Yes, yeah, thank you. Me three. Oh my no goodness! Way. No <laughs> happy birthday, Jordan! Uh, well, no, you too. Wait, so <laughs> Nate, you're the first. Yeah, I'm on the and, first. And then when are you, Stephanie? Eighteenth. 
Okay, and I'm the 31st. So oh. there we go. We got we got the whole spread. That was you, Brody. Unfortunately, not. <laughs> June. I love a June. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, completely <laughs> off. I, I feel like we should change the um, zodiac signs into birds because I feel like that would. Uh, haven't we had this discussion before, Jordan? Speaking of discussions, we yeah. might have had. Yeah. Well, past. because. Because I'm an Aquarius, but you're uh, Capricorn. I'm Capricorn. That matters. Like, yeah, Capricorn bunting. I'm an Aquarius, a water bearer. Like, come yeah. on. Like, give me a duck. Give me a duck. Yeah, Goldeneye. There you go. Yeah, there you go. Well, I had long tails just down the road from me. Oh, nice. That was, that was very cool. You're I, not close to the, to the ocean, though. I always think of long-tailed ducks as No, there. no. It's totally because of the snowstorm. So oh, yeah. we live near the water treatment plant for our town. Oh, they love a water treatment plant. Yep. And they sound pretty yeah. cute too. So, well, I think this is a task for someone to rewrite the Zodiac as birds. And yeah. um, I think Capricorn uh, sea goat should be Capromogaformes. Yeah. Goat sort. sucker. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Not too many of those around in January, unfortunately, but still, <laughs> <laughs> at least where we are. <laughs> it's on some sort of theme. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I I read a story uh, or a study that came out about um, the mallard as a case study of silent domestication in the Anthropocene, and I um, what I got from this article is that it was asking the question uh, of whether mallards are wild birds or are they actually just the pigeons of the sea. But I know they they really are wild birds, but um, we know yeah. that <laughs> sort of. But yeah, yeah this uh, study uh, points at some interesting topics from the mallard's history where it has been partially domesticated or fully domesticated in some cases. And um, I, I just I, I feel like I learned a lot about uh, mallards that, you know, humans have been eating mallards going back 100,000 years in Europe. And domestic breeding uh, started in the 1600s. But one of the ideas from the story uh, that, or the study that was shared was that some of these domestication efforts and really intensive human interaction around mallards may actually inevitably be harmful for their survival. So mm. some of the, the cases that they pointed to is that there's been a lot of instances of uh, uh, domestication and breeding of mallards and then releasing these populations into the wild populations. And also in some cases, I think they mentioned in France where they're really not only, you know, manipulating the populations with these human bred captive reared individuals, but also their habitats are really highly manipulated and artificial. And that's also kept um, birds in those really artificial habitats, but also in other managed habitats. Um, you know, in North America as well, from birds are are not migrating that that used to. And there was a question put out there about whether mallards that are influenced by these domestic populations and this gene flow from these groups of uh, birds that were domesticated, whether they can survive events like climate change, or mm-hmm. you know, if they're as resilient as they are as a, a wild population would be. That's really interesting because on the on the one hand, I would think that these birds are more resilient just because they are everywhere, like every park pond, every golf course, every you know every water treatment plant in Florida. Like there are mallards and mallard type birds all over the place. So you would think that perhaps they would be more resilient to any sorts of changes than the wild population would be. But that's interesting to think that. I guess if you think a little bit further about it, then the ability of wild birds to migrate and change is adaptive as well. And that's probably something that's going to be more or allow them to be more able to react to a change in climate, the sort of nomadic abilities, the ability to travel long distances than these, I don't know, these, these half wild, half domestic ducks. I don't know. It's hard to tell. Yeah. All mallards are on a spectrum and, and it feels like most of them are somewhere in the middle on the domestic, the wild spectrum. Right. Yeah. They they actually made a point that there's been studies showing that where these domestic releases are happening, that their mm-hmm. populations are going down. So huh. I thought that was wow. really interesting, especially amongst other evidence that, you know, waterfowl are just doing fantastically. Like yeah. in the 3 billion birds report, they're like the real winners because of the conservation efforts, because of um, thanks to, in part a lot to our uh, waterfowl hunters. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a great uh, a great piece. I, I think that sometimes we get you know less interested in the most common birds, but yeah. just like uh, 
Yeah, just like the pigeon, I think mallards are totally fascinating. And and with respect to Rosemary Moscow, uh, I always think of April as, you know, weird duck season because I answer a lot of emails. And April is when I start getting emails from everybody like, there's a mallard on the roof. There's a mallard, you know, in, in the playground. Like, there's a mallard on my front porch. Um, because they just start looking for somewhere to nest and they're just so yeah. Uh, yeah. highly adaptable. And you know, I, I got a, I saw them in the loading dock of the neighborhood bar last April, you know, just like searching out, you know, if there's a good spot to nest there. Um, so they're, yeah, it's, they're a cool species, but I, I was, I, the thing that I found the most interesting about this article was that I did not realize, you know, I always think of the domesticated birds. I think this mm-hmm. article, unfortunately, um, sort of skipped the entire Asian history of the species because the bird was first domesticated in Southeast Asia and they didn't really talk about that. But I did not realize that it was you know, huge numbers, maybe up to 200,000 mallards that are farm-raised are released every year for hunting in the United States, which kind of blows a a huge hole in this whole sort of hunting as conservation argument where, you know, people talk about, well, it's, you know, about about the conservation of the landscape and all that. But so what are we doing releasing 200,000 mallards into the wild every year? That just seems totally... Yeah, wild. I, I had no idea that was happening. So is there a I, map that shows where these um, where these releases are happening? I, I know that they said that they were more prevalent on the East Coast and huh. less common as you go West, though I'm not huh. exactly sure, you know, if they had map of locations. Yeah. But the environmental implications of that are astounding. Again, going back to Brody's part, like, 200,000 are just being released like that has to have an impact right like I'm sure someone has thought about this but I feel like as the bird community we definitely don't connect those dots and everything I had no idea that was right so this is just again what is a species like what's the difference between wild and domestic especially for ABA life listing you know checklist and everything like it just the again the ecosystem aspect I, it, this made me want to dig in more and and left me more with questions than answers for sure i was surprised that the domestication of the mallard that at least the the western domestication of the mallard was so recent in in human history only the 1600s that's that's shocking was that because of connections with uh, you know silk road type stuff uh, connections with Eastern Asia. I think it, yeah. I they brought domestic. I thought that possibly it was up to sixteen, yeah, uh, up to you know fifteen hundred years ago in hmm. uh, parts of the Near East. But I know that um, they've been domesticating them in in uh, China for at least three thousand years. Hmm. Uh, so they've got this you know very long history. I, I would have loved to see more of an analysis of of what has happened there with birds that have a much much longer uh, history of domestication. You know, the Peking duck obviously. Yeah. Yeah. I have no idea if the same sort of genetic flooding and muddying of mallard and mallard type ducks in North America is happening also in that part of the world as well, because they have, you know, anise ducks that are quite similar to American black ducks, mallard, model duck, Mexican duck, that whole complex. Um, Are these sort of domesticated mallards mixing in with them as well and sort of causing all these sort of weird Franken ducks that we are so familiar with in in our parks and golf courses and neighborhoods? The manky ducks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but the conservation implications, again, so yeah. fascinating. Like these these birds are out there, like they're domesticated, but they're quote wild because they're outside. And like, yeah. what does all of this mean? Also, parallel questions about chickens. Yeah, I was just gonna say this feels like a this feels like a, a bird issue because can you really domesticate? a bird it feels like there's always a lot of that wildness that's still in a bird in the way that you might not get with um you know domesticated mammals for instance yeah they they brought up a example of uh comparing them to pigeons too and mm-hmm. how like they're still what they call wild pigeons yeah. i feel like we might have talked about this on that pocket on the podcast as well Maybe. but <laughs> there's still wild pigeons out there but people don't really feel like there's a conservation need for them and they're yeah. you know because of that example, they were concerned that that could happen to mallards too. Brody, do you want to talk about the yes. scourge of AI binoculars? <laughs> <laughs> They're only a scourge until Swarovski sponsors the podcast. Exactly. I'm not, and I'm not trying to step in the way of that. <laughs> no, no, no. no. <laughs> 
Yeah, so AI has come to birding and birds. I'm sure we're all seeing a lot of this. Uh, my least favorite manifestation of this is all of those AI bird images that you see mm-hmm. on social media, which are so frustrating because there's 10,000 amazing birds in the world and we don't need to make up any new ones, is my personal Agreed. beef. Yeah. Uh, and then there's you know the, the really good AI stories out there about how we're using it for conservation, these different stories about using them for biologgers and acoustic, bioacoustic research. Uh, and then to me, there's the sort of question, questionable middle, uh, which is uh, this last week, I guess, um, Swarovski announced their new binoculars. The first smart binoculars is what they have uh, called them. They are the AX Visio binoculars. So if you haven't seen these yet, they're pretty amazing uh, in terms of just the engineering that went into them. They, you know, they had their sort of monocular mm-hmm. DG uh, a few years ago that could take a picture of what you were looking at. I did hear described as the worst flop in Swarovski history, but this one is is a dual barrel and it, had, and it has a camera in the middle. Uh, where the you know sort of focus barrel would be, uh, and it can take a picture or video of what you're looking at. It can also identify the bird in the screen using the Merlin technology. It also has this amazing feature where it can you can select a point that you're looking at, and you can then hand your binocular to your friends, and it will guide them to where the point you're looking at was. Oh, I didn't know that. That's with cool. a little circle around. It. Yeah, pretty amazing. Pretty amazing stuff. So it's, uh, yeah, and since it's from Swarovski, it's very reasonably priced, uh, coming in at just <laughs> over $5,000. Uh, yeah, it's a pretty interesting device, 10 by 32. And it really just so many questions about, uh, about this pair of binoculars. I mean, I think on one hand, it is the sort of the first real jump into, I hate this phrase, but like smart birding. Where mm-hmm. you're just sort of seamlessly integrating, you know, more technology. I think that you know, with wearables and everything else, I think that we're going to be seeing lots of this stuff in the future. On the other hand, it's such a strange device because it's. I'm just really trying to figure out who the intended audience is because you know it is five thousand dollars, which is a significant chunk of coin. More um, than most, even high-end binoculars. Right, dumb binoculars. Yeah, or even more than. I mean, my camera is perfectly fine and it was uh, 20% of that cost. Mm-hmm. Um, it also is, but it sort of has this beginner aspect to it, right? Mm-hmm. Identifying your birds for you. But then it also weighs two and a half pounds. <laughs> so I'm just trying to imagine like some really buff, you know, rich, brand new to birding. I'm trying to create a mental image of who that is. Uh, hey, and birding's <laughs> a thing now. There's a lot of people birding. It's like, like a birder bro. Almost. Yeah. <laughs> With like just, a tank top on and just, they're out yeah. There. yeah. <laughs> I didn't see any in Florida. I was hoping I was, I was <laughs> but, not yet, but you have to, yet. you know, you have to meet them and find them and turn them onto this new device. That's right. Just so it's like a new, it's like a new like thing that you can look for when you're birding. I still have yet to see a pair of the DGs out in the real world, a wild mm-hmm. pair of DGs. And now I'm looking for these AX Visios. What, what do you yeah. all, what do you all think about the, the effort? So I'm looking forward to trying these out at the biggest week when I go up there. Nice. Okay, I imagine the Suaro folks will have a few pairs around to play with. Uh, I'm curious to see how this works. I, I feel like this has been inevitable ever since Merlin got good enough to be mostly right. Um, that it seems like a natural extension of that technology to try and figure out a way to put it in binoculars. So I get it. And as for the price, yeah, I mean, they're the, it's the first iteration, so it's going to be a little pricey. Um, right. you, I would think that as the technology improves that the price would come down. That's the way these things sort of go. But I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic i guess of how well this works um i don't know how quick it takes it quick it can get an identification i'm not sure about any of that stuff i i one i wonder about its practical applicability in the field um i would like to get some in my hands and uh play around with them if anyone from swarovski is listening to this podcast uh, yeah, so <laughs> i'd be I happy to talk about it. but i think, I think <laughs> it's interesting i think it's interesting 
I, I think what we have to worry about is that, you know, the functionality will where it'll identify the birds in the binoculars and then immediately submit it to eBird. Oh, man. Right. Spare oh, a thought man. for the poor eBird reviewers who have to add ID'd by my binoculars to, you know, ID'd by Merlin is what they have nightmares about, right? <laughs> Which is better, Merlin or Swarovski? I don't know. I guess we'll, we'll have to see. Um, I'm still waiting for eBird to have the capability where I can like speak into my phone and it automatically counts the bird list. That's what I'm waiting for. That's the killer app that I would like to see. I think it will be a while before we start seeing this saturate into the market, um, but it would not shock me. In fact, I, I sort of know um, that the other binocular brands are are thinking about this sort of stuff as well and trying to figure out how it works. Swarovski's kind of the first one to the market on this, but I think it will not it will not be the last. It seems like a good January topic too, just in terms of like <laughs> what is this year going to hold for what birding is, and yeah. it, like all of those things and it seems like again the technology aspect, the AI. I mean, I know that there used to be some binoculars that also like were mini cameras almost like that's the next level because then if you can be like a bad picture, I got it for documentation, (laughs) you know, Hey, eBird reviewer, don't take my word for it. Like then it all comes together. Um, (laughs) If a binocular already has that capability to identify the bird, then I would think that taking a photo of of something you're saying would be a relatively easy add on at that point. But I, I was don't just, know. Yeah. The, all the layers, it's like bringing it all together into one. Yeah. And that seems both like very nice, but also kind of concerning. Just because <laughs> I, my mind is going to like all of those movies where like, uh, honestly, there was like a 90s movie called Smart House and like the house like took over. Yeah. Like it was supposed to be like new you think age. You're, and you're like, not <laughs> going to try and strangle you with their strap. <laughs> hey, I don't think it's a smart pounds. strap. I think we're okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I think. I think the big question is, you know, and, and I will uh, admit that I have a pair of Swarovski binoculars that I got a great deal on used, um, but I love them. I mean, they're amazing. They're great right? binoculars. They're amazing great binoculars. binoculars. Yeah. But I guess the question is, do you do, it, it, it seems like they do this one thing really well. And mm-hmm. now oh, there's, is it doing two things not very well? Right? Yeah, um, that's, what, that's a great point. I've, yeah, because I've got a camera that automatically sends the photos to my phone and, and then I have them. But I, that being said, like you, I, I do really want to, try them i will also say getting to stephanie's point that um there is one demonstration video from a retailer that i won't mention here but uh it shows them because there's also mammal identification and they do say the mammal identification doesn't work as well and in the video it identifies a douglas squirrel as a western gray squirrel and uh-huh. so I'm watching the video and I'm like, oh, that's not, not a West Coast. It doesn't look anything like it. Uh, so, yeah, so there are still some uh, glitches to be worked out. As Yeah, well, and it's a, it's a classic both and situation, too, I think, just in terms of the accessibility and educational aspect of these binoculars yeah. could be huge, especially given the tracking aspect. All of mm-hmm. that, that's cool. I perked I up for that because that, that would be. Yeah. That would be so helpful, especially when guiding and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we want more people to learn about birds and appreciate them and everything. But as a lifelong birder, then I'm kind of like, where does this end? And how, you know, there's just lots to explore and learn and figure out what the practicalities are for sure. Again, $5,000 for two and a half pounds. That sounds like a baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe it might be more expensive and a little bit heavier, but for the most part, yeah. you know. <laughs> okay, fine realities. But still. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting you said that about about guiding. You know, at Portland Audubon, we don't use laser pointers, and I know that uh-huh. a lot of uh, folks do. And one of the reasons is that we think that you know, just because something's easier, I mean, in a lot of ways, things that are easier make it harder to learn, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, we think there's a lot of skill involved in like being able to describe exactly where something is being able to get people on the bird i'm somewhat agnostic about that but it's it does make you wonder yeah does it make things easier and make us worse birders in the end or something yeah i mean i could have said that about merlin as itself especially the sound recordings because i've always said Mm -hmm. i'm a bird watcher not a bird listener so i appreciate like the assist the double checking right but like how much am i gonna you know, lean into it and take things for granted almost. And that's just a personal stance, right? Like, cause I want to be sharp. I want to, I want to learn that stuff for myself, but it is that kind of pro con weighing all of the different uh, cost benefits of things. 
Yeah, it is interesting because what is being sold is something like Merlin, Merlin sound recording or Mer, or these Swarovski binoculars is that they're right. They're correct. And they are like a pretty remarkable percentage of the time, but they're not right all the time. And the reality is Merlin makes mistakes and having that sort of knowledge base the, is it will help you recognize when Merlin does make mistakes and it will make you better and Merlin better down the road. But honestly, the way this technology has, has come through in the last few years, like it feels like yesterday that Merlin sound recording even came out. And now, now we got binoculars with Merlin in them. Um, maybe the binoculars will have uh, earpieces that you can plug into down the road. So we'll, rec- we'll identify those for you. I don't know. But like, it's, like, the technology is incredible, uh, even if it isn't 100% accurate. Yeah, they're pretty, pretty stunning uh, binoculars. So curious to get my hands on a pair. Yeah. I'm also curious if they work anywhere. Do you know? Or they yeah. can you take them world traveling? Yeah. So they they so that since they're using Merlin, um, Merlin has trained their uh, software on nine thousand birds. Um, so you know there. So that leaves what about two thousand that it doesn't have. But uh, so that's what they're billing it as is you know nine thousand birds. Uh, so most places that that's going to be most places that you would ever go birding. Hmm. But then the they also have a little bit of um, mammal ID um, and I think butterfly and dragonfly ID and those ones are much less fleshed out because we just don't have anything like Merlin yeah. for all of that. But yeah, pretty impressive. Yeah, interesting stuff. So all of these great conversations lead to missed connections. Uh, article recently out by Lucy McRobert. Uh, it is a bit long, but worth the read. I'll admit it was really good and a pretty perspective piece so far, but really summarized kinds of this kickoff into 2024 for the bird community at large. Um, it is in Bird Guides, which is uh, European-based, but I think has a lot of uh, applicable things for us in the ABA area as well, um, largely because 2024 is a pivotal year for a lot of societal and cultural reasons. Um, I won't touch too many hot topics, at least not right now, Uh, but we all know what's brewing uh, in a variety of ways. And so when you think about what's good, what's kicking off the new year, you think about birds, right? And on the ABA podcast, we've talked about everything from the, quote, COVID birders, that that big boom in uh, self-proclaiming. Yeah, they still are. They still are. Um, but, but just in terms of this huge peak of um, very, very obvious, very self-proclaimed uh, interest in birds and nature. But as the, the title of the piece is said, there's some misconnections. Um, the piece starts out talking about a, a big, dare I say, trivia competition um, uh, for university students and then zooms out to, to be societal level. But kids these days, goodness gracious. <laughs> I mean, no, <laughs> I can't help myself. I can't help myself. Young birders, you give me hope. You are the future. Otherwise, there is just a lot of lacking awareness, a lot of need for education, uh, whether that is bird-specific education, nature education, environmental education, you name it. Um, and we're just missing this, this awareness and knowledge um, on an individual level that is so needed. My own commentary, I remember in the 90s, I, I, I just shout out because such a good person. But um, in the 90s, Ken Kaufman gave an interview that I'll never forget because I, I was a kid and, you know, he was up on a pedestal and I was like, oh my gosh. Um, and one of the interview questions was if if Ken Kaufman was like president for a day or got to rule the world for a day or whatever, what would he do? And he said that he would have everyone learn 20 bird species that are found in their community. And this was in the 90s. And bringing it back to this Missed Connections article, um, it doesn't say it in there, but that's effectively what's needed right now um, as the conclusion of uh, Lucy McRoberts' piece because uh, folks are more aware, but now we need to take this next step towards really uh, having this understanding of putting species names to what folks are seeing just to really ignite this care and passion almost 
to then take the next step, which is action. Um, whether you want to call it environmental action or bird-friendly lifestyle action, um, but really putting the care of the the natural world forward. And so I think it, this, again, is just a really nice launch piece for the beginning of the year, because who knows what's going to happen in general uh, for this calendar year. But I think just keeping that very front of mind of appreciation, uh, action and and what we do as birders, uh, it really does matter. Yeah, I was really struck by the part of the article that is sort of towards the beginning where they talk about this. As you said, there's a lot of these COVID birders, there's a lot of people who are newly interested in nature, but they don't know how to appreciate nature in a way that is both safe for the nature itself. We'll witness all the videos you can find of people being stupid around Yellowstone wildlife uh, for that, although that, I don't know, that's a new thing. And two, you know, satisfying for them. Obviously, satisfying is something, means something different to every single person in the way that you engage with nature. And I don't want to tell someone how they're supposed to do nature because that's the way I like to do nature. But people are ignorant on how to be appropriate around nature or how to get the most, I guess, out of nature. And I think just by being birders and being out and being visible, you know, we can play a role in helping people find a way to nature that is both satisfying and and safe for the the stuff we're trying to protect the animals we're trying to enjoy. Absolutely. And I feel like we've really come full circle both in this individual uh, podcast episode and conversation, but almost in this like multi-step over time aspect mm-hmm. as well in terms of, you know, as technology increases, we have to be more cognizant and, and intentional with how we benefit and use technology, but don't let it take away from that direct connection with nature and what's, mm-hmm. what's real. Uh, as Brody said about AI, the AI pictures in general, like there's so much information out there. There's so much to learn. The access to that information is huge, but we still need mentors and community yeah. and people that you can actually engage with and learn from and share and and ha- like we've come full circle in a way um and i just i really hope birders don't don't lose that authenticity of having that that person to bird relationship because that's that's just so pure in the heart of all of this and what's going to keep us moving forward i think so uh i love trivia and i promise this is related but <laughs> question for you all do any of you know what the state bird of Oregon is? I'll give you a hint. It's one of the really common ones. Um, In Oregon? We don't have cardinals. So. Western bluebird. You're, is, is it, I would say close. <laughs> is it American robin? No, no, not. Uh, we're not that bad, at least. <laughs> we're, uh, Goldfinch. I should know uh, that. I used to know all the state that's birds. Washington, actually, I think, is American right, goldfinch. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I thought. Yeah, I, I thought you might be one of those people that knows all the state birds. It was one but, time uh, I did, but it's been <laughs> out of my brain, unfortunately. By, by other yeah. things, probably worthless things. Yeah, well, it's it's. Uh, I'm sure you're going to kick yourself when you hear it. It's yeah. the western meadowlark. Oh um, yeah, that's a good one. That makes yeah, sense. I almost said that one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the reason I bring that up is because I always think of this story. It, it was voted on the, because there's been some you know, some thoughts about changing the state bird because all these other states mm-hmm. have Western meadowlark. But the reason it was originally adopted as the state bird is back in the 1930s, they had a, um, like a vote among school children about mm-hmm. what the bird should be. And they voted Western meadowlark because they liked its song. And I just always like to hearken back Great to song. imagining yeah. a time when school kids knew what the songs of birds were. <laughs> Man. Right? Like, and yeah. I, you know, back then yeah. in the 30s, I, I think that that's part of what this, article was getting at a little bit is you have all these highly educated students that know all this incredibly arcane trivia but don't know uh, you know about these rather common birds in their area and Mm -hmm. i think that you know the education system i feel like we used to just expect that everybody spent a lot of time outside and people just sort of colloquially knew the birds in their area and now it's you know everyone spends a lot more time inside and i think we haven't quite caught up to to treating that as a separate area that needs to be yeah. formally taught in a way where the kids need to spend a lot more time outside. And that, I guess that's probably gotta be during the, the school day is probably when that needs to happen because yeah, there is that huge gap. Well, and not to get too philosophical, but like what is trivial? 
right? Like on the one hand, you know, especially again, as a, as a young birder growing up, like everyone thought it was trivial that I knew the birds in my backyard, but is that actually like important knowledge and context and like planting seeds for future things? I mean, it was for me personally, but I think that line of what is important societally, what actually helps us understand ecosystems or where you live or future concepts and things is something that I feel like, again, we got to go back to basics almost and figure out. I don't know. I feel like especially, you know, we mentioned 3 billion birds earlier and everything. Everyone knows like that's important, but I don't know if there's a a true understanding of anything more than an alarmist headline. Um, You know, it's just been interesting the past few years as that continues to become a reference and everyone has heard about it. It seems like, like, do you really understand like what an indicator that is for the world though, (laughs) right? Like, is there a next level that we could get to um, that is important? I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's just my own bias speaking. Um, But again, those connections are being missed because it really is the the hobbyists, the the enthusiasts that are trying to push this forward right now, as this article suggests. Yeah, I'm, I'm still heartened by how I mean I, I've been uh, leading trips for Portland Audubon for five years, and in those five years, the people have gotten so much younger. I mean, there's yeah. now multiple people on trips that are younger than me, which was unheard of when I first started. And, and so I do, I am, um, I am optimistic. I think that that uh, there's so much more interest in. And being outdoors and wildlife and all of that that uh i'm yeah i remain optimistic yeah i'm remain. optimistic as well i i just feel like a little bit my impression of the story was like oh more doom and gloom that i mean it was interesting jordan you pointed out that you know when you were growing up you probably heard the same things where people are like kids aren't getting out enough and <laughs> No one knows well, what birds are. And when I was growing up, uh, people didn't get out because they thought that kids were going to be kidnapped. That was like the big <laughs> worry. In the I think that's still happening, <laughs> but uh, yeah, or the fear at least is happening. Yeah. But um, uh, yeah, I've, I, I, I feel like all of us probably grew up as the the bird kid. You know, you were uh, among that group already of you know feeling like this was really important. But um, when I when I was a kid, I, I spent a lot of time inside and I just want to, I just want to have hope for other kids that were in my shoes because I, I'm like, when I look at back at my childhood memories, I watched a lot of TV. I spent a lot of time on the internet and I still found birds. So yeah. I feel like we can't just keep spreading doom and gloom about people like spending too much time inside are not going to find birds because I'm, I, I just have hope inside of me that's possible. <laughs> well, I hear from, I hear from uh, people who are the heads of bird organizations um, all the time. are like, how can we get more young people into birding? How can we get more young people, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, and there's always going to be young people that are into birding. There are more young people that are into birding now than there ever have been, certainly more than there were when I was a kid. But people come to birding at whatever time they're ready to come to birding. Like, people come to it when they're young because whatever the reasons that we did, they come to it when they're young professionals because, you know, they have some expendable income and they want to have a hobby that allows them to be outdoors and birding seems cool. They come to it when they are parents and they want an excuse to go outside with their kids. They come to it when they're retired and they suddenly have a lot of time available. There's this multi-generational community of birding. All of us have sort of come to birding at different times in our lives, but we all end up sort of in a very similar place. And I think that that is is so important to, to reiterate because it doesn't, you know, people aren't necessarily a better or more skilled birder if you come to it as a young person. You find your way to your this this hobby. You find your way down this path by whatever individual path there there is. And um, you know, we should celebrate all the different ways that people come to birding because ultimately we need all the birders we can get. Here, here. Yeah, absolutely. A uh, couple of things. One is I completely am with you though, Stephanie, because you know, being inside and everything. Huge advocate of feeder cams and accessibility there you go. in that yeah. regard. Also care about, you know, looking outside your window and birds are everywhere. So totally with you there. Um, I also feel like Nate's piece absolutely preach. But no, also you can, you can you can criticize me. It's fine. <laughs> oh no, I was just gonna be like, I wonder if like it being a big birthday month and the upcoming <laughs> question of the month is making oh, us yeah. all we're all we're all grumpy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're all uh, have, looking dead on into our immortality. Is that what you're suggesting? <laughs> 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 <Jordan>. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm just saying. Like, yeah, anyway, let's let's move on to the, <laughs> to the last topic, the question of the month. I came across this this um this article in the Guardian, another another British newspaper, uh, and it's by uh, Emma Beddington, and she writes. Why do middle-aged people love birds so much? And I guess I never really thought about why do people from certain generations love birds so much? Because every individual has their own way to love birds. But as someone that is middle-aged myself, or at least you know heading in that direction, I don't even know, can we define what middle-aged is? I'm not even sure what that means anymore. Um, I'm in my 40s, so I guess that decidedly means that I am, I am middle-aged, but... Um, there's a lot of different definitions out there, but none That's of them exactly are good right. for <laughs> somebody who's 42. Middle enough, yeah, yeah. This it's prompted me to check uh, what it was, <laughs> what the range was, because I just assumed I was middle aged at this point, but I I found out I have a few years left. Oh well, you're middle aged, young adulthood. Me, yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, thank you. <laughs> well, in the compliment. birding world, we're all young birders, don't you know? So. Yes, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> and we'll be until the end of time. But uh, Emma writes about Flacco. And how she was obsessed with uh, with the owl. We've talked about Flacco Brody. I know you and I have talked about Flacco before. Um, he is still hanging out in Central Park, doing doing his eagle owl thing, uh, moving a little bit more afield. But she was basically talking about how uh, the story of Flacco was really interesting to her, even though she was visiting New York. Yeah, so she decided she wanted to find Flacco, and she was sort of questioning why uh, she wanted to do so. I don't know. I don't think it's a middle aged thing. Is my answer, but um, I mean. For someone to be interested in Flacco, I don't need. To, I don't think you need to sell yourself short, Emma. You're just a person that is interested in Flacco, like uh, thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of other people out there, uh, following this saga and learning about birds along the way. I guess my question of the month is to you: Why do middle-aged people love birds so much? <laughs> or do they more than other people? I have no idea. I well, I I saw the there was some meme about like well I. All my friends who are becoming middle-aged are getting into birds, and I welcome you. Yeah. So I'm happy to talk to yeah. you about birds <laughs> Yeah, when you reach yeah. that point in your life. When you're ready to talk about birds. <laughs> uh, I will I'll try to answer that question uh, with a question, which is, yeah. what it. is the worst injury you've ever had birding? Uh, I've fallen. I've mean, uh, probably twisted my ankle. Mine is connected to my ABA Young Birder Camp experience, oh, there you actually. Go. So I'll save that. The young for... birders are notoriously, uh, <laughs> notoriously yeah. clumsy. So yeah. Well, I, yeah. I mean, for me, I used to spend a lot of time outside doing um, much more dangerous things, and mm -hmm. I broke bones at probably a dozen times. I've been to the emergency room, you know, many, many times with various injuries. And I know it'll happen at some point. Knock on wood. I still have yet to break a bone birding. So there you that's go. A, it's a big thing mm -hmm. for me. I like to be able to spend a lot of time outside without going to the emergency room. Yeah. Well, no ABA podcast with me on it is complete without me saying that birds are amazing. So middle-aged people love them because they are amazing. Um, <laughs> but I also will acknowledge that I am no spring chicken anymore. I am an old coot. Uh, I am grumpy. <laughs> And cynical and jaded. I and think everything. that's just the time of year, Jordan. Everyone uh, gets grumpy this time of year. Well, again, birds days are short. Right? The birding yeah. sucks. <laughs> um, but no, no, really. Um, in all seriousness, as Emily Dickinson said, you know, hope is the thing with feathers, and uh, birds give me hope. Birds, as Stephanie were saying, are optimistic. Like I think that they're. <laughs> you have you have lived a life as a middle aged person long enough but also short enough to know that like you care you have you have worries you have concerns you also have a lot of things you want to do and so i think birds are kind of the epitome of bringing all of that together in terms of a source of as Holly, holly merker says uh ornotherapy right so so mm -hmm. all of the benefits there um but they also lead to a lot of wonder and and curiosity and you know driving a career or driving a hobby um you know forward i think there's a lot of things that birds help you cope with and uh explore explore the world um you know i definitely know that my weekend travels or even international travels are much more about birds than dare I say, cultural uh, things and museums or whatever, because it's about experiences and getting out there. So middle-aged people, I think, like birds because birds are amazing. 
I know that there are some listeners out there who are like curling up and, and turning into dust at the thought of y'all calling yourselves middle age. But for the purpose of this, <laughs> for this question of the month, I think it's appropriate. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think you're right. It gives you time to be outdoors. It gives you a, a purpose. It gives you something to do. It gives you a hobby. Everyone needs a hobby. And outdoor hobbies are hard to come by uh, as you get older and uh, less agile. Um, like you, Brody, I, um, I used to do outdoor stuff. I played sports. I rode bikes. I was, um, but I, I don't do that stuff anymore. And, and birding is a great excuse to be outside with my family and something that I can do on my own or with them or, um, or always, you know, even when I'm sitting on the sidelines of a soccer game. Uh, watch my kids play. There's birds flying over that I can pay attention to. So yeah, there's always there's always something to do. It's good to have something that um, that takes you away from the from the troubles of the world. And birding's good for that. Maybe as middle aged people, they're more <laughs> attuned to the troubles until um, they find out the new troubles of being a part of the birding community <laughs> and how <laughs> some, some people are very intense. <laughs> some people are very intense, but you don't have to be intense if you don't want to. Be. Right. That's there's so fun. many different ways to be a bird. There's so many different I, ways and there's I always a community that. for you. Yep. Absolutely. It brings us much joy until we get on the listservs. <laughs> <laughs> True. True. Thank you so much for spending the January 2024 this month in birding with me, uh, Stephanie, Jordan, and Brody. It's been great to see you again and talk to you. I hope you have a great 2024 it is as auspicious as the birds that you started the year with. I hope to see you down the road. And uh, thank you so much for, for being here. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Thanks. Thanks so much. Happy birdie, everyone. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. Don't forget to join the ABA if you enjoy this podcast. You'll be eligible for a lot of great benefits, including our magazines, discounts to partners like OM Systems, Beautio Books, Cornell Lab of O, and more. You can get information about how to join at aba.org slash join. Special shout outs this week to Kellyanne Craig of Youngstown, Ohio, Sean Doring of Richmond, California, Morgan Mattingly of Memphis, Tennessee, Rebecca Partington of Everett, Washington, and Brooks Emanuel and the Emanuel family, including his birding nephews, Evan, Carrie, and Theo of Durham, North Carolina, all of whom joined the ABA this week and noted this podcast as a reason for doing so. Thank you so much. Welcome to the ABA, especially birding nephews, Evan, Carrie, and Theo. Hi. Executive director of the ABA and executive producer of the podcast is Wayne Klockner, who once saw a duck building a nest outside of a bank, but they evicted it out of concern that it was a robber ducky. Technical production is by Sean Lowry, who wonders if captive bred ducks are more likely to spread bear part parasites to their wild counterparts, something like tick duck toe. Additional help comes from Maggie Fitzgibbon and Craig Neese, who are concerned whether the captive waterfowl industry is even allowed to supplement wild populations, whether they have the proper documentation. You can find us online at ABA.org, on social media, most everywhere is American Birding Association. On Blue Sky, we're at ABA Birds. Questions, comments can come to podcast at ABA.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Bird Like Tom, we'll see you next week.